signed leases and really regretted it. So I'm not moving anymore, but I tell you what's going to happen this time. If they screw up my water, it's going to really be hell. Part two of our series on natural gas drilling from a world of possibilities. Wednesday afternoon at 2 here on listener-sponsored KPFA. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, and 88.1 KFC up in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It's 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your mind. Every Friday, happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is December the 28th, by golly. Aha, here comes 2011. Okay, yeah, this week between Christmas and New Year's, some people complain about it. I think it's a wonderful time to do absolutely nothing. I'm concentrating on cheering up on account of because we don't have any other choice. I think of this week as a time for hanging out. Uh, Actually, it's usually a time for a hangover for me, but... This is the the time of year we make lists. Uh, when I was growing up, it was the time of year that people went around the bend or off the beam. Uh, now, I think it's a time for sobering up and getting sensible. Uh, oh, you know, it's that old, the cup is half full. Uh, I, I figured it out finally. Uh, I always have the temptation to despair, uh, especially at four o'clock in the morning, you know, in the true dark night of the soul. It's always three o'clock in the morning, day after day after day. However, I have now reached the glorious age of 77, and I have no business doing that. I have no right. Uh, I actually have no choice but to be optimistic. Uh, from now on in, everything I get is <laughs> is gravy. What I thought I'd do, since it's the fashion at the moment, uh, is to look on the bright side. I thought, I thought, I'll make a list of the good stuff. <laughs> I couldn't find much. I did, I did finally decide that at the top of the list, it's got to be the fact that we have ended ended that wretched um, don't ask, don't tell nonsense. Uh, I, I didn't believe it when it when it started. It was 17 years we've had of that ridiculous policy. I never heard anything so silly in my life. It sounds like something that 
uh, junior high school girls would would um, do, you know, in their little cliques. Um, I don't know. The the phrase itself makes me wince. I I kept wondering uh, whether our statesmen, that's what they call themselves, yes, our statesmen, gentlemen in Congress, wonder if they are proud of all that BS. Um, I think, I, I just assumed that the military would be so embarrassed that they'd uh, ignore it. But obviously they had to do away with it officially. Years ago, I remember sending pink shower curtains to the Joint Chiefs of Staff with the thought that maybe, you know, the fellas, well, the women too, of course, what they could all be protected from the wicked eyes of uh, same-sex. Uh, oh, Lord, it's just, it's so silly. I just want to do something frivolous. I want to read you a couple of poems Celebrating the love, uh, let's see, I've got one by Gertrude Stein and one by Walt Whitman. Uh, Gertrude Stein, I think everyone is pretty well satisfied that she and Alice B. Toklas had one of the great marriages of the 20th century. Uh, about Walt Whitman, well... I, I still read um, critics and pundits who insist that Walt Whitman was not a practicing homosexual. <laughs> I God, I don't know. That's too much for me. Uh, I think it is quite clear in his poetry. Uh, he did. He did tell. I don't know how many people asked him. He. He. Uh, I think several writers have said. Incredibly compassionate things about Walt Whitman's love of the soldiers during the Civil War. How he went among the dying, the wounded, from bed to bed. And how he held these young men until they died of their wounds, that sort of thing. Uh, it was a long, long time ago. Uh, let's let's just read Walt Whitman's poem. Uh, remember, those of you... Uh, who didn't take that course in American poetry, you know. Walt Whitman was born in 1819. He died in 1892. I guess he would be my great-grandparents. Anyway, dear Walt Whitman wrote, uh, When I heard at the close of the day... I found this in a collection of love poems from the Everyman's Library Pocket Poets. There it is. Walt Whitman wrote, When I heard at the close of the day how my name had been received with plaudits in the capital, still it was not a happy night for me that followed, and else when I caroused or when my plans were accomplished, Still, I was not happy. But that day when I rose at dawn from the bed of perfect health, refreshed, singing, inhaling the ripe breath of autumn, when I saw the full moon in the west grow pale and disappear in the morning light, when I wandered alone over the beach and undressing, bathed, 
laughing with the cool waters, and saw the sun rise, and when I thought how my dear friend, my lover, was on his way coming, oh, then I was happy. Oh, then each breath tasted sweeter, and all that day my food nourished me more, and the beautiful day passed well. And the next came with equal joy, and with the next at evening came my friend, and that night, while all was still, I heard the waters roll slowly, continually up the shores. I heard the hissing rustle of the liquid and sands as directed to me, whispering to congratulate me for the one I love most lay sleeping by me under the same cover in the cool night, in the stillness, in the autumn moonbeams, his face was inclined toward me, and his arm lay lightly around my breast. And that night I was happy. I think that Walt Whitman has spoken clearly enough. Yes, I think he did tell about his love for the men that uh, he met in his life. I, uh, I don't know what it is about our American culture and our silly puritanical streak. It's lovely. Someday soon I must... Uh, review my notes and go back over D.H. Lawrence and some of the fellows. It's amazing, but it seems that we have to cover this territory again and again. You know, this prudery that Americans suffer from. <laughs> anyway, let me read you just a little short, a uh, few lines from dear, dear Gertrude Stein. Yes, my father figure in in uh, American literature. Uh, Gertrude was born much later than uh, Walt Whitman. She was born in, I think, let's see, 1874. I remember when I got my master's, uh, I uh, one of the authors that I used on my uh, exams was Gertrude Stein. And it was her centennial. It was 1974. That's how come I can remember. Gertrude died just after World War II. She was uh, 70-something. And, uh, oh, yes, dear Alice B. Talkless. She lived on for another 20 years. And she she was so anxious to meet Gertrude Stein in the next life that she converted to Catholicism. And she's buried there next to... Gertrude, she hoped to uh, uh, join her in the spirit life, but of course, <laughs> Gertrude Stein herself, when she was living, she wrote, when a Jew dies, he's dead. Anyway, here's a few lines from Gertrude's poems. This is uh, 
in a section called A History of Giving Bundles. (laughs) And uh, uh, Gertrude Stein writes, If you hear her snore, it is not before you love her. You love her so that to be her beau is very lovely. She is sweetly there, and her curly hair is very lovely. She is sweetly here, and I am very near, and that is very lovely. She is my tender sweet, and her little feet are stretched out well which is a treat and very lovely. Her little tender nose is between her little eyes, which close and are very lovely. She is very mine, and mine which is very lovely. (laughs) There's pages of this, you know, it's, yes, the funniest one, yes, is the... The one about the uh, Valentine, I use it in February. It's called A Very Valentine. This is, of course, written to many lovers. Gertrude Stein writes, Very fine is my Valentine, very fine and very mine. Very mine is my Valentine, very mine and very fine. Very fine is my Valentine and mine, very fine. Very mine and mine is my Valentine. Okay, I have a footnote here. Back when I was a college girl, I I thought that Gertrude Stein needed an editor. But actually... (laughs) It's kind of like the Bible, you know. You can skip over some of the begats because when you get to the funny parts, it's absolutely delightful. Uh, There's a lot of stuff here about giving bundles and roses and rose buds, right? She goes on and on about all the thousands of buds and rose buds. You remember Gertrude Stein's famous line, Rose is a rose is a rose. I believe, well, the gossips say, I don't know if people think this is, uh, if people are prudes, they won't like this sort of talk, but uh, the, the, uh, the writers that I read tell us that uh, Gertrude Stein was speaking of a certain part of female anatomy when she referred to Rosebud, more or less the way it is in that movie, you know, the movie... <laughs> Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, he was in love with a a little uh, child's toy that he called Rosebud, when actually the gossips tell us that uh, Hearst used that word to describe a very private part of his mistress's anatomy. And of course, I'm looking up here in my own notes, all that background material about uh, Women's clitoris. Let us just say the word. I don't think that FCC will come and take me off the air for using that word. But I, uh, I remember reading when I was young uh, in Simone de Beauvoir, the French writer who wrote a book called The, the Second Sex. She wrote uh, 
that women uh, are not born women. She says we're born old human beings, you know, with the body and the soul. And that this, uh, uh, this body and soul are often injured at that particular stage of development, you know, when they should mature. And uh, uh, she goes on to describe a number of, uh, oh, what are they? Let's call them, let's call them myths. Uh, the word is, I like to pronounce the word clitoris. Based on its Greek origin, the correct pronunciation, I think, is clitoris. Spell it K-L-Y-T-E-R-I-S. Rhymes with kite, K-I. I think that sounds stronger. Accent the first syllable right, long I. It is derived from the Greek word clitoris, K-L-E-I-T-O-R-I-S. Mm-hmm. Which means divine, famous, and goddess-like. Greek myth personified the clitoris as an Amazon queen whose name was Clytai, the ancestral mother of a tribe, a tribe named the Clytai, K-L-E-I-T-A-E. This tribe was warrior women they founded a city in Italy. Now, I got that from the Federation of Feminist Women's Health Centers. <laughs> anyway, they also define a clitoris as, quote, a complex structure which includes... Well, I'm going to stop right there because, you know, um, I hate to say it, uh, lately, we get all these messages from the FCC about any descriptions of sexuality. Uh, anyway, uh, if I take the time to describe the pelvic diaphragm and all these nerves and blood vessels, uh, I'm sure I'll get calls from the people who disapprove of sexuality on the airwaves. Uh, what we know is that this organ is the center of woman's erotic pleasure and of course for that precise reason it strikes fear into the heart of our death culture I've been curious um, over the years this nonsense with don't ask don't tell been curious about the reasons why uh, it is usually used in reference to may, male or gay culture at the same time the um, uh, the use of this punitive policy has been to kick women females out of the military uh, uh, you figure it out um, the feminine gets all uh, tangled up in semantics uh, the basic principle of course is that uh Girls aren't warriors. We can't have them in the military. Okay. Anyway, uh, I have a whole bunch of stuff here about... Uh, oh, I'm not going to get into this. This is too much. Uh, if we get into the Koran, then we're really in trouble. You know how it is, boys and girls. <laughs> I think each one of us has to sit down and work this out for herself or himself. Back in the gay 90s, um, more than 10 years ago, I used to write articles about uh, 
my, what is it, my gay inheritance, the way in which I became uh, acclimatized. I was raised with many gay friends, but we did think, we did think it was an esoteric culture that the mainstream people would not understand. Uh, there were a few films, and those are still around. Uh, I used to try to recommend them here on KPFA. Uh, there's one here. Oh, yes. I'd start with The Birdcage, uh, basically, because that one is the one you can take your Republican relatives to. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a sociopolitical smooth, smooth fest. Uh, I think there's a lot of reconciliation going on uh, in the theater right now. Uh, I hope so. Uh, the screenwriter on Birdcage is Elaine May. She's someone, well, Gore Vidal says that when Elaine May speaks, we all uh, shut up and listen. Anyway, uh, I remember, I remember thinking how much she had improved it. Uh, anyway, existential shock is the stuff that comedy is made of, and she's done a wonderful job with this movie. Uh, she uses Gene Hackman to play the Republican. Uh, now, it's funny how this works. He's a reactionary Republican. But he's so appealing that somehow or another we sympathize with him certainly as much as with the gay characters. Uh, he is a senator and he uh, is, of course, worried about his image, uh, the politicians, you know. And uh, the funny thing is that if you remember the bird cage, the two young people wish to marry and uh, the parents of the young man are a gay couple. And they invite the parents of the young woman to dinner. And Gene Hackman, uh, playing the reactionary senator, uh, is completely seduced by the drag queen. Uh, she comes on to him all dressed up as a heterosexual housewife. She spouts right-wing ideology and family values worthy of Phyllis Shafley. That, of course, was Nathan Lane, the immortal Nathan Lane. Anyway, <laughs> there is a scene that I love to watch in which Gene Hackman melts. He basks in the glow of feminine flattery. So it's really basically a portrait of uh, adorable male naivete, if you believe all that. I believe it. I believe it. Uh, you know, anyway, a little false eyelashes and... Uh, a uh, nice smile, and almost any guy will submit. Uh, who was it? It was Diane Weist. Now, she was wonderful as the straight character, the straight uh, woman whose uh, daughter is going to marry this young man. And uh, she <laughs> she's hurt, and uh, what is it? Her nose is out of joint because nobody pays attention to her. I know how that feels. Yes, indeed. Anyway, uh... Now, the senator is not an imaginative uh, man, but he's certainly not Jesse Helms. Uh, he is basically in drag himself because he's a politician. That is, he has to wear a mask, pretend to be that which he is not. Uh, now, in this script, in the birdcage, homophobia was shown as the fear of public censure. 
It's a kind of conditioned reflex. Uh, oh, Mike Nichols directed the remake. Um, let's see now. The French original dates from 1978. That was La Cage à The play, yes, the original play was by Jean Poiré, P-O-I-R-E-T. It was the 1970s that saw the explosion on the screen, um, you know, just before the age of AIDS. By the 90s, uh, there were all kinds of problems, and Hollywood was aware that uh, the gay community was under a real threat, uh, torn to bits, actually. As Fran Leibowitz said, <laughs> hasn't been any art since. Never mind. Mike Nichols and Elaine May came of age as a comedy team during the 60s. Uh, in those years when Abby Hoffman told us that the duty of the true revolutionary is to cry theater in a crowded fire. <laughs> Try and do it today. <laughs> anyway, um, I thought that uh, The Birdcage would be a wonderful opening movie for a, what is it, a semester's orientation for a uh, gay, what is that, uh, gay liberation course. Uh, I looked in my, my own book about the movies, and I noticed that there are long lists, I'm sure you can find them if you go on the net, of superb movies. Uh, Desert Hearts was one of my favorites. Lena Wertmuller wrote, well, she made so many f movies, but I would recommend one called Soto Soto, Softly Softly. Uh, and then there was A Woman Like Eve. Uh, yes, the list, the list is on. Personal Best is the one that I would use for high school students. Um, anyway, look them up and go and see them. I think... I think that television is now the place, you know, where the, what is it, the breakthroughs in consciousness are cropping up. And it's funny, if you think about it, go back just a decade or two, and you will realize that we have come a long way. It has been television that has educated the young uh, along these lines. Now, whether or not mm, gay liberation has meant general general sexual liberation that's a tough one uh i'm going to say i hope so but for me it's always a question of where does this leave women i saw that woman uh, what's her name zoe somebody the uh, the navy commander the one who uh fought the uh, don't ask don't tell policy for 17 years and Oh, she was weeping with, um, I guess, uh, happiness, relief, because she had been uh, banging her head against this stone wall for all these years. Uh, she did manage to stay in the Navy. God bless them. I always thought that the Navy was a step ahead, but uh, and the Marines a step behind. You know, that kind of nonsense. Uh, but like, like Fran Lebowitz, I'm still totally confused as to why... Uh, Gay liberation looks at marriage and the military as places where uh, they need to make progress. Uh, <laughs> when I was a bohemian, 
we thought that those were the last two places any sensible person would want to be. We thought that everybody wanted to be an artist. Anyway, uh, I was thinking there's a fascinating historical review of Hollywood's treatment of gays. It's called The Celluloid Closet. That's one I should review here in depth. Uh, look it up. It's a documentary that dates back to 1895, The Celluloid Closet. Uh, this has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air again next week at this time. Thank you so much for your kind notes and letters. And thanks to Nancy and Martin for... This copy of Bullworth, ah yes, best movie about politicians ever made, Warren Beatty's movie, Bullworth. Till next time, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Join us for a special screening of the new documentary, The Economics of Happiness, on January 13th at the Brower Center in Berkeley at 6.30 p.m. The Economics of Happiness is the new documentary film by Helena Norberg-Hodge about the worldwide movement for economic localization. The film features a chorus of voices calling for systemic economic change, including Vandana Shiva, David Gordon, and many others. This film will be followed by a panel discussion with producer and author Richard Heinberg, Jenny Kazin of the Sustainable Economies Law Center, Rosa Gonzalez of Bay Localize, and Eric Holtkamenez of Food First. The David Bauer Center is at 2150 Alston Way in Berkeley. A $15 donation is greatly appreciated. No one turned away for a lack of funds. This event will fill up, so be there early. To learn more about the film, visit www.theeconomicsofhappiness.org. This event is a benefit for the International Society for Ecology and Culture and is wheelchair accessible.